0: Good evening and good day, everybody. Great to be with you again. Welcome to episode 20 of the Ask Budget Show. So we are completing four weeks today. So before I begin, I would like to thank you all from the bottom of my heart. Thank you for your your viewership. Thank you for all the comments. Thank you for your questions. I really appreciate it very much. And uh, it wouldn't have been possible without you all. So thank you very much. And before I begin, uh, an announcement. So uh, this this channel needs to keep evolving. It needs to keep changing, and I want to keep providing you more and more value in the form of different ways of giving you knowledge. So I would like to resume creating long-form documentary style videos. Many of you have been saying that, that I need to go back to creating the videos like I made for Chinggis Khan, the reason why Chinggis Khan refused to invade India. So I want to go back to start to doing that again because certain questions, certain topics need to be answered in more detail. They need to be elaborated upon in greater detail. So I would like to start doing that again. So I would like to eventually start creating one such long form video per week. So that's what I'm gonna be focusing on more from next week onwards. So to do that, I need time. So I'm gonna have to uh, to change the schedule of, uh, of the show. So until now, the past four weeks, I've been doing five shows a week. So from next week onwards, this coming week onwards, I'll be doing three live shows per week. So that's the change I'm, I'm making. So there'll be three live shows per week. I will publish the schedule tomorrow. So I'm not going to ever stop making these, doing these live sessions. I really enjoy them. I enjoy interacting with you. I enjoy having this conversation with you and uh, interacting with you live. And uh, the... Short clips that I'm releasing will keep on coming every day, a few clips per day. So you will keep getting uh, new content from uh, on this channel every day. And like I said, three live streams per week as uh, as always. So that's what's going to happen this coming week onwards. So that's it for the announcement. And now let's get after it. Today is the most popular topic, Indian history. So let's start with question number one. Uh, Today, there there are some interesting topics and some controversial topics as well. So let's start with question number one. So this is about a video that I released, a short clip that I released in which I have spoken about India's partition. Did India want partition? Did the people of India want a partition? Did Did they desire a partition? And I said that India did not want a partition, and there should have been a referendum about this matter so many people have written in to me and this is so i am showing you a couple of comments that represent uh, what other people have also been saying so this uh, so this says that there was a referendum the 1946 assembly election had been fought completely on a one point agenda of creation of uh, pakistan by the muslim league the turnout was was very high and lots of uh, pe- muslims voted for pakistan there is another comment like that uh, by ishan More than 90% of Muslims voted for the creation of Pakistan in 46 provincial elections, uh, etc. Uh, So how can you say there was no referendum? So I hear you guys, and thank you for asking these questions. Unless you ask me questions, we will not have this conversation. So if you feel I am wrong, you need to express yourself as you are doing. That's the only way way we can take this forward. So, So thank you for asking this, and let me explain what I mean. Okay? So I say there was no referendum, but you guys say that there was a referendum. So let's understand a few things about democracy, which we are not taught in our education system. Rule number one, an election that is held under foreign occupation is neither free, neither is it fair, nor is it democratic. It is illegitimate and null and void. Imagine if there was an election in France during the Nazi German occupation of France, during the Second World War, when France was liberated, do you think they would have continued with that uh, assembly or whatever the result of the elections were? No, they would have immediately declared it null and void, right? Because that election was held under Nazi Germany. I mean, how can you consider that election to be legitimate? If China were to hold an election in Tibet today, in Chinese-occupied Tibet, do you would you consider it to be a legitimate election? No, it's a null and void election. It's held under foreign occupation. So how do we even begin to consider an election held under British occupation to be a fair election, a free election and a democratic election? How, how, how do we think that, think that that's the case? It's because our education system doesn't teach us what democracy truly means. Right, so this election in 1946 was held under foreign occupation, it was held by the British to, re- to legitimize their rule over India and to give India the, the, the last, uh, the last basically the coup de grace before the leave. So that was an illegitimate election, it was neither free, nor fair, nor democratic, it was under foreign occupation. That's point number one. Point number two is Let's take a look at some statistics from this election. All right. So let me share my screen with you. Uh, let me share one of these. Uh, yeah, here we go. So this is an article written by a lady called Rupra Subramanya. Uh, The title of the article doesn't matter. Okay. But here are some interesting statistics. Let me make it larger so you can see it properly. So this article says that... The 1946 elections based on the 6th schedule of the 1935 Government of India Act had a limited franchise which means that only a small percentage of adults, those with money and property, were eligible to vote. In fact, only 3% of the population could vote for the Central Assembly and only 13% could vote for the provincial assemblies. That means that only 30 million people could vote in assembly elections out of a total adult population of 120 million. So do you see this? This is what, you, what I mean by an election that is not free or fair. There were 120 million adults in India who should have been allowed to vote, but only less than 30 million were actually allowed to vote. So it is not a representative election. It did not represent the will of the true population of India. That's point number two. This election was a fraud. It was a fabricated election, right? And here's point number three. An election is not a referendum. There's a big difference between an election and a referendum. An election is where voters elect representatives. That's an election. A referendum is a direct vote. It is when when an entire electorate is asked to accept or reject a single proposal or issue or question. So a referendum is completely different from an election. Both have a vote, but a referendum is not an election. An election is not a referendum. These are separate things. A referendum is about only one question. It's either yes, do you accept it, or no, do you reject it. That's it. You cannot construe an election to be a referendum and interpret its results as the uh, result of a referendum. That is absolutely unacceptable in democracy. We have to understand what true democracy is. And this is how the 1946 election, the so-called 1946 election, was completely illegitimate. It was held under under foreign occupation. It was not representative by, by any stretch of the imagination of the people of India. And thirdly, it was not a referendum. It was an election for seats, for, a, for a legislature. And that's why my point stands that... India was partitioned illegitimately, illegally by the British. They had no business partitioning India. Their only business was to pack up and leave and let the Indians decide what what is the future of the country. And that future should have been decided by a referendum in a free and fair election, free referendum in free India, not under British occupation. So that is the point, my friends. Please understand that. Okay, question number two. So Lakshmi asks after Tipu Sultan died the british restored the wadiars back on the throne of mysore could you explain the history behind this and it looks like some kind of agreement just to sustain etc please throw some light upon it so the Wadiyars were basically uh, a small uh, family f- small dynasty who were the vassals of the vijayanagar empire the vijayanagar empire was treacherously destroyed by by foreign invaders right we know that and then eventually the british took over the region and uh, the wadiyars so after tipu sultan was uh, was defeated by the british they reinstalled the wadiyars on the throne of mysore like you say so we have to understand one thing very clearly my friends you have a lot of so called uh, royal families in india today right the the descendants of royal families the ones who were the descendants of the princely states of india Let us understand one thing very clearly. The real royal families and dynasties of India, the genuine legitimate royal families and dynasties were all wiped out in 1857 by the British. And the so-called princely states and royal families that we have today, after uh, after 1857, are the puppets that the British installed on those thrones when they reorganized India and they took control over the whole country. Some of these are definitely the uh, descendants of the original lineages, those who chose to cooperate with the British. So which means that these are collaborators. Those who chose to collaborate with the British against the Indian interest were allowed to remain on the throne. And those who fought the British were wiped out and replaced by puppets. So in essence, every single royal family that you have today, so-called royal family, are the descendants of either puppets or collaborators, and I am sorry to say, the war are those, and that includes every other royal family. Okay, so the true patriots, the true freedom fighters, the true royal families who fought for India, the great Lakshmi Bai's and many others—they were all wiped out. Their possessions were looted and carted back to England, and puppets were placed in in the lieu. So that's what happened. So that's what we have to understand those are not royal families those are puppets or collaborators that's which is even worse okay another interesting question now so mr rahul raj says um mysore palace of india so this let me let me let me explain the context i had uh, i have released another short clip of an answer that I gave about why are there no royal palaces in India. And I said that throughout India's history, India's kings have adhered to a Dharmic code of conduct, wherein they cannot amass luxuries and and wealth. They have to basically serve their only, their highest morality is to serve the the kingdom and the people and not to enrich themselves. And that's why they always lived humbly and they never uh, uh, lived a luxurious lifestyle. So many people <laughs> have, have given me examples of where I am mistaken, where I, where, where I am proven to be wrong. So this is one gentleman who says that the Mysore Palace of India, where the king is a Hindu, L-O-L, this is a joke. And what about Rajasthan, which is full of forts, forts. Okay, so that's one. I'll give you some, some more examples. This is another one But Nirali. Uh, we have a palace in Vadodara, Lakshmi Vilas Palace. Uh, Solu says, what about the Rajasthani palaces, which are actually forts? Uh Vijay says, Episodes like me, like this, make me doubt all other e- episodes. Hope you get a chance to visit Hampi, Rajasthan, etc., other palaces in India. Uh Rai okay, Gadi, Gadi and Gurd is not less than palace, etc. Rai etc. These are so these are goods, which uh Diraj would like to interpret as palaces. Okay. Uh, Mysore Palace, another example. Okay, so these are examples that people have given me. Now, this is what I have written in the description of my video. Discounting a handful of British occupation era palaces built by puppet kings, there are no royal palaces in India, despite countless kingdoms, dynasties and empires having flourished over nearly 10,000 years of India's archaeologically attested history. Why is this so? So that was the question. So I have clearly said that there are a few British occupation era palaces built by puppet kings. So the the palace in Mysore is one of those British occupation era palaces. The palace in Vadodara or Baroda is again a British occupation era palace. And these uh, Rajasthani Okay, let's talk about Hampi. Hampi, there is no palace in Hampi. It's all monumental architecture. It was one of the most prosperous empires in India. Everything was on a grand scale, but there is no royal palace there. You're mistaken, sir. There's no royal palace there. And when, when it comes to the Rajasthani forts, we have to understand the difference between a fort and a royal palace. A fort is a town that is surrounded by a wall to keep occupiers or invaders out. It is an entire town which is surrounded by a wall. Now, if the entire town is built on a luxurious scale, it means that India was very prosperous in the past. It is not a royal palace. It is a place where everybody, including the king and the commoners and the soldiers, everybody would be encamped within the walls. So those are the Rajasthan forts. There are a couple of palaces. Yes, those are British occupation era palaces. Please understand the difference between a palace and a fort. And please understand the difference between the British occupation era and the previous 10,000 years of India's history. So my point stands that with very, very few exceptions, there are no royal palaces in India throughout the 10,000 year old history of India. Indian kings have always adhered to a Dharmic code of conduct, wherein their only duty is to ensure the prosperity of the kingdom and the people. They have never lived luxurious lifestyles. You can see this through anywhere in the country. There are no royal palaces except for the ones I just spoke about. And the forts, the gods are not palaces. Those are fortifications wherein in, in which thousands of people would, would uh, take shelter. So if they were built on a palatial scale, it only means that India was very prosperous in that era. So I hope that clarifies this this matter. Okay, Alok. uh, One second. Yes, this is the right question. So Alok asks... Uh, was Alexander a philosopher king who traveled to India to seek knowledge and wisdom and was accompanied by philosophers and the battle of uh, Hidaspis never ha- happened as he did not have any intention to invade India? And why is Alexander so popular among the Arabs, Persians, etc., including wherever which, where he has been called Dulkarnain? So let me answer this question by referencing a book. So this is a book about Alexander. It's by, uh, as you can see, Jacob Abbott. So let me read out a passage from the very last page of this book. Okay, this is a book. It's a very good, very nice little book by Jacob Abbott. I'm going to the very last page of the book and the very last paragraph. Let me read out the quote. Let me read out his last one paragraph summary of Alexander. And this is what he says. We cannot help applauding the extraordinary energy of his genius, though we condemn the selfish and cruel ends to which his life was devoted. He was simply a robber, but yet a robber on so vast a scale that mankind, in contemplating his career, have generally lost sight of the wickedness of his crimes in their admiration of the enormous magnitude of the scale on which they were perpetrated. This is the truth about Alexander the Great. It's not me who is saying this. It's Jacob Abbott. You can buy the book. It's a, it's a very inexpensive book and a very nice summary of this guy's career. So in brief, Alexander was no philosopher. He was simply a robber who committed robbery and theft and crimes on an enormous, almost continental level scale. That's what Alexander was. So I hope that answers this question. It's a good question. I'm glad you brought this up. And I hope this answers your question, sir. Okay, this is by Rahul Ragunath. Uh, Rahul Ranganath, sorry. Rahul Ranganath. And the question is: Was Mahatma Gandhi really the way he's portrayed in our textbooks? A benign and benevolent leader? I recently came across a book, The South African Gandhi which seems to tell us otherwise thoughts on Gandhi in general yes sir good question and uh, before i go there so the book that you're referring to is this here book it's called the South African Gandhi it's by uh, Desai and Vahed. and this book talks uh, goes into great detail about uh, into Gandhi's life and and actions and activities and career in South Africa, right? He was in South Africa for, I think, over two decades. So this goes into that and it references Gandhi's own writings. So it goes to the very heart of the matter. It takes words from the man himself to explain what his career was like. And let me just read out one quote in Mohandas Gandhi's own, from Mohandas Gandhi's own writings on the back of the book. I think you can't read it. So let me read it out to you. This is Mohandas Gandhi who writes in 1920, No Indian has cooperated with the British government more than I have for an unbroken period of 29 years of public life. I put my life in peril four times for the cause of the empire. This is what Mr. Mohandas Gandhi said in 1920. This is what he wrote. It's still available in the public domain. If you know where to look, you'll find it. Now let me show you some more interesting snippets from Mr. Gandhi's life from this book and, and thereabouts, yeah. So here's one uh, example of Mr. Gandhi's activities. Uh, Gan- Mr. Gandhi, Mr. Mohandas Gandhi served as a sergeant major in the British Army during the Boer War in South Africa, 1899 to 1902. OK, that's point number one. Secondly, Mr. Gandhi recruited Indians to fight and die for Britain in World War One. Right. Let me show you some more uh, truths about Mr. Gandhi. Mr. Gandhi Gandhi begged the British to allow Indians to fight for the British during the Boer War in South Africa. He sought to give Indians the opportunity of a thorough training for actual warfare. So Mr. Gandhi did not believe in nonviolence when it came to supporting his British masters. Here's some more. So, Mr. Gandhi was a loyal servant of the British Empire. He encouraged Indians to fight for Britain during World War I. He actually went to villages. He went from village to village trying to recruit Indians to fight for the British Empire during World War I. And he wrote to the Under Secretary of State for India, begging him to accept his services to the authorities. He never preached non-violence to the British. And here is evidence. This is Mr. Gandhi's own letter the aforesaid letter, we beg to offer our services to the authorities. And Mr. Gandhi speaks about sharing the responsibilities of membership of this great empire. So these are some facts, some small facts about Mr. Gandhi, just a few among very many, Mr. Gandhi's writings, his voluminous writings are all available in the public domain. I would encourage you to check them out. They are rather eye-opening, I would say. So these are the facts, and this sp- and the facts speak for themselves. I have, I don't have to give my opinion about the matter. I would like to hear your opinion about the matter, right? I have shown you some facts. You can look it all up yourselves. You can take a look at the book. You can buy the book online if it's available online, I'm sure. But even better, just look up Gandhi, Mr. Gandhi's own writings. They are all available online for free, right? And Just go through them if you have the time, and and you will find very interesting facts that will emerge from there. So that's all about Mr. Mohandas Gandhi, Mr. Mahatma Gandhi. Okay, Akash. Akash asks, Jinnah or British, who can be held responsible for breaking India? Jinnah was a tool. Mohandas Gandhi was a tool. The British had a long-term objective. They had their own agenda. Uh, They had a very clear exit plan of exiting out of India when India became too poor and too miserable to extract anything more from, right? There was nothing left to extract from India. India's GDP had crashed to less than 2% of the world's GDP. India's uh, life expectancy was around 30 or less than 30 by the time the British left India that's how des- that's how desperately poor and destitute india had become at the hands of the british of the british right and so they were desperate to leave they just wanted to leave the country but they wanted to still use the region because they still had interests in the middle east and the gulf right and they wanted a part of india to be on their side so that's why they wanted to break india into a couple of uh, like two or three pieces And that's what they achieved via Mr. Jinnah. So Mr. Jinnah was merely a tool. I am by no means trying to exculpate Mr. Jinnah for his crimes against his nation and against his own conscience. Because in his early career, he was very much a nationalist. He was very much a secularist, a true secularist, not a fake one like, like the people we have today. He was a true nationalist. He fought for Hindu-Muslim unity. He fought for India when he was in London. He was a true nationalist. He was a true freedom fighter. And later he betrayed his own conscience. He betrayed his own people. He betrayed his own nation. So I am by no means trying to exculpate Mr. Jinnah for his monumental crimes, especially what he did in the 1940s, the Direct Action Day and all that. But he was merely a pawn in the British, in the hands of the British. If If Jinnah had not done this, they would have found somebody else to do it, right? So I hold the British responsible for breaking India. And the responsibility also lies with Mr. Jinnah and Mr. Gandhi and Mr. Nehru and every other leader, every other uh, major significant leader in the Indian National Congress. They are all responsible. But the puppeteers, the puppet masters were the British. And these people were British collaborators. So that's that's what you have. That's There you have it. Okay, Jan Sigal. Jan Sigal says, "I currently live in Thailand and see a large portion of animism in Buddhism. I wonder if that goes for Hinduism also. So animism is the is the uh, belief that every object has a certain." divine essence in it, a certain spiritual essence in it. There is divinity in everything. There is divinity even in inanimate objects like rocks and stones. There is divinity in trees and forests and there is divinity in animals and men and women and children. So everything has a certain divine essence within it. And this is what is called animism in English. So Buddhism, yes, it has elements of animism and Buddhism emerged out of Hinduism. Hinduism This is very much part of the Hindu belief that there is divinity in everything. Yes. And there are many folk practices that are part of Hinduism. Hinduism is a very plural culture. It's not a religion in the Western sense. It's a culture, right? It's a civilizational culture. It is an extremely plural, plural culture. You can be an atheist within Hinduism. You can be an agnostic in Hinduism. You can be a Jain. You can be a Buddhist. You can be a Sikh. This is all Hinduism, FYI. And there are many schools of thought. There are many philosophical schools of belief in Hinduism, which are very sometimes very much at odds with each other. And they also have a great deal in common. So Buddhism and Jainism are two of these. So is Sikhism, so is Charvaka, so is Mimansa, so is Vedanta, and so are Yoga and Sankhya and so many more. And animism is very much a part of Hinduism. There are many people who believe in animism, who practice animism, right? Who worship Who worship nature. Nature worship is part of Hinduism very much. So yes, to answer your question, in short, animism is very much a part of Hinduism. The same way it is a part of Buddhism, right? Okay, next question. So AJ asks, how different are Arabic and Farsi? Why do we use so many of their words even today? So the reason the Hindi language incorporates so many Arabic and Farsi words is the very reason why the people in southern India find it so difficult to understand Hindi because they are way more comfortable with Sanskrit. Sanskrit is very much a part of every language in India. Sanskrit vocabulary is part of every language in India, no matter where you are, right? And it is this Arabic and Farsi intrusion into the Hindi language, which makes it difficult for them to understand. So Arabic and Farsi are extremely different languages. Arabic is a Semitic language farsi is an indo-iranian language it is very close to to hindi we say chandra in hindi in sanskrit they say chand in arabic right and i can i can give you lots of different examples like that so if you if you understand any language that is derived from sanskrit any any prakrit derived language it's very easy for you you to learn farsi or parsi because it's essentially part of the same language family. And if you are a a Farsi speaker, it's very easy for you to learn Hindi. I, when I was a student, I was living in a hostel. There were a couple of Iranian students there and they had picked up Hindi, fluent Hindi in a matter of months. They could converse very fluently. They had a slight Persian accent, but that's fine. So it's as easy to learn Persian as it is as easy as it it is to learn Kashmiri, for example, or or any other Indian language. That's how easy it is. So Persian or Farsi is very much part of the Indo-Iranian language family. It's almost like an Indian language. It's slightly more distant, but it's not hard to pick up at all. Arabic on the other hand, is an entirely different language from an entirely different language family. Right. The Persians have been forced to adopt or to, yeah, to adopt the Arabic script with some uh, modifications. So that's why it appears that Persian is close to Arabic, while it is not. I, I'm sure there are Arabic loanwords inside Persian too, because of the uh, history that Iran has had for the past thousand years. It was under Arabic occupation, and it has been made to absorb Arabic culture and, and a great deal of the Arabic way of life. So there must be, I'm sure, a great deal of Arabic words in the Farsi language today, I have not studied this language, but I understand the linguistic uh, aspect of the language family that it belongs to. So these are two very different languages, extremely different. But these are both present in in, in differing uh, quantities in Hindi because of the uh, Turkic occupation of India, which also brought in Arabic and Persian influences. Right, so so that is the reason why we unfortunately use so many of these foreign loan words today. It's not because of our choice; it's because of because of the uh, the history that our country has had over the past few centuries. Okay, Akash asks, why uh, could the Indian national army led by Subhash Chandra Bose not achieve its objective militarily? What were the major problems in that? So there are a couple of things. Uh, An army marches on its stomach. It's a very common and very old cliche, but it's very much true. An army needs logistical supply chains in order to succeed. You need ammunition. We can't be short of ammunition. Otherwise, what will you fire? And you need food. You need water. You need supply chains. Logistics. Logistics is what sustains a fighting force. Now, Subhash Chandra Bose did not have access to a great deal of wealth. He did not have access to funding. He was supplied by the Japanese, ammunition and food and all that. And he was fighting basically a guerrilla war in the jungles of, of Myanmar, of Burma, right? So it was an ill-equipped army. It was short on funds. It was short on food. It was short on all kinds of supplies. The only thing is they had courage and they had blood. So that was what what kept them fighting. So these are the reasons why uh, Subhash Bose and the INA could not achieve their objective militarily. They were up against the, the entire allied force, right? The British, the Indian army the Americans, etc. This was a very professional uh, armed uh, fighting force, right? Very well supplied. There was no shortage of funds or food or ammunition or water or anything that that you need, right? And there was no shortage of troops as well. And the INA had limited troops, which were all taken out of the uh, Japanese POWs, prisoners of war that they had taken from the British Indian Army. So that's why this army could not achieve its objectives. It was always up against it. It was against it was fighting against incredible odds. It was basically a suicide mission. And they did it for the love of their country. And see how they were how they were treated after independence, right? <laughs> so that's India for you, my friends. That is the Nehruvian regime for you. They disliked anybody who fought the British using violent means. So in brief, that's why uh, the INA and uh, the great Subhash Chandra Bose could not achieve their objective. Militarily, they unfortunately, by an accident of history, had to pick, had to go on the wrong side, the side that ended up losing, because the logic was that my enemy's enemy is my friend. So the Japanese and the Germans were fighting the British. At the time, no one knew what the Japanese and the British were doing. Uh, the, The Japanese and the Germans, the Nazis were doing, no one knew at the time. It was only after... The war ended. That people came to know what the Japanese, what the, what the Nazis were up to, and even what the Japanese had done in various parts of China. So Subhash Bose basically was a pragmatist. All he, all he sought was to liberate his country by any means necessary, and that is the right approach. Unfortunately, he ended up on the side that lost the war, and he was basically very short of every supply you can imagine, it was short of troops and short of everything else, logistics. And that's why he could not succeed and the INA could not succeed. Okay, this is by, um, yeah, Uh, it says that Shivaji and the Marathas were just raiders. Shivaji looted Surat two times. The Marathas constantly raided Bengal and killed many Hindus. Just sh- search about Shringeri Math massacre in Karnataka, where they killed many priests residing there and looted the temple. So don't think themselves some sort of saviors of Hindus, etc. Read about whatever. Marathas was, would go into other kingdoms and if they denied to give tribute, they would simply burn the crops of the farmers. They were not different from other medieval kingdoms who wanted to expand their influence for their own cause. Okay, so this is what you say. Now let me Correct you, sir, whoever you are. Shivaji, yes. Shivaji Maharaj did loot Surat two times. Surat was a Mughal encampment. It was occupied by the Mughals, by the Turks. Right? And what Shivaji did, what the great Shivaji did was he looted the Mughal treasury in Surat. And he looted these wealthy merchants who were making the Mughals prosperous. He did not touch a single civilian. Who's going to tell you this? I am sure you're not going to tell us that, right? You're not not going to write that in the comments. And I know many well-educated people who say that Shivaji Maharaj was a bad person because he looted Surat. I mean, come on. He did not touch a single civilian. He did not loot a single civilian house. He looted the Mughal treasury and he looted the wealthy merchants who are making the Mughals wealthy. And that is perfectly justifiable. All right? Secondly, the Marathas constantly raided Bengal and killed many Hindus. This again is communist propaganda. Hmm? That's what the communists have been writing ever since independence. The Mughals were trying to free Bengal from the Turks. And that in that basically necessit- necessitated warfare and raids into Bengali territory, which was occupied by the Turks. There would be battles. The Bengali Turks did employ Hindu soldiers, right? Those would get killed in the warfare. But once again, the civilians were not touched and nothing was burned. This is all communist lies which have been fabricated after independence. That's point number two. Shringeri Mutt. Yes. Okay, once again, you're saying that many priests were killed. That is a lie. Not a single priest was killed. Yes, the Shringeri Mutt was looted. Yes, an elephant was stolen and some other wealth was stolen. It was done by irregular non-combatant uh, members of the Maratha forces. The soldiers did not do it. There was there was a, a division of the Maratha forces which was basically involved in mopping up operations. They are the ones who did this. And the moment the Maratha, re- the Maratha leadership came to know about this, those people were apprehended, they were punished, and all the possessions were given back to the Shringeri Mutt. And this is the fact. Look it up online. These are all communist lies. These are the communist historians who have been spreading these false... Accusations against the Marathas in order to make the Marathas look bad. The Marathas were always, uh, they always acted ethically according to the principles, according to the ethics and morality of Indian warfare. They never touched civilians. And on the one-off chance that this, this sort of thing happened, the culprits were punished and the possessions were returned to the shringeri Mutt. So an exception is not the rule. Yes, one such thing happened and action was taken promptly against it. All right, so basically everything you're saying is incorrect, sir. So you need to, I think you need to educate yourself about this matter. Okay, Sai Jardav asks, is it true that South India was saved from Mughal influence because of Chhatrapati Shivaji Maharaj? To a great extent, yes. Uh, Because if if, uh, Shivaji Maharaj had not, achieved what he achieved, it would have been easier for Southern India to fall under uh, Turkic influence to a greater extent than it did. And after the great Shivaji, his uh, his successors expanded the Maratha empire, empire even more. And these are uh, basically the things that contributed to a great extent towards to saving Southern India from the influence of the invaders. And also because this uh, the southern part of India was very far away, and the country is so large. So it's a it's a combination of facts uh, of factors. But yes, the Marathas and the, uh, the great Shivaji did have a significant role to play in in protecting the southern part of India from the Turks. This is by Shreya. Uh, more number of classical dance forms exist in South India. Karnatic music is much more elaborate than Hindustani classical music? Is it possible that many dance or music forms of North India were lost during Turk rule while South Indian ones got saved at the time? This is a fascinating question. It's a very interesting question. So first, one small correction. Carnatic music is not more elaborate than Hindustani classical music. I would know, being a musician, right? Okay, I I am also a musician, an amateur one, but I, I do... Uh, understand uh, Indian classical music and the ragas and all that, right? I, So, yeah, I'm not going to further into that. But basically, Carnatic music and the Hindustani classical music have basically, they, sh- they share the same ragas, which are uh, classified under different names in the North and in the South, but both are equally elaborate. So that's point number one. Point number two, yes, more classical dance forms exist in Southern India compared to Northern India. In Northern India, you only have one dance form which is Kathak, uh, which is not one of my favorite dance forms by any means. But in Southern India and in Eastern India, you have many more dance forms that have survived. So yes, I think it is very, very logical what you're saying that many dance forms in the Northern part of India may have been lost during the Turkic rule. It's very much possible, yes while southern Indian ones did get saved. Uh, Odissi is one of the most beautiful and most interesting dance forms in India. So that was saved. Uh, Northeastern India was saved. That's why Manipuri survived. And Satriya in Assam survived, etc. These are two different uh, dance forms. Manipuri is one of the classical dance forms of Indian classical dance, one of the major dance forms. And Kuchipuri survived. Mohini Attam survived. Uh, Bharat Natyam. And uh, like I said, uh, the other one, uh, Odissi so yes it looks like southern india did, did uh, prosper culturally continue to prosper culturally because there was a lesser turkic influence in southern india right and it's interesting to note that many of the dance forms in southeast asia like the apsara dances and other dances in cambodia and thailand and burma etc are greatly influenced by southern indian classical dance forms It's very interesting. Even Manipuri classical dance is similar to the dance forms that you have in Myanmar and Burma and to some extent in Thailand and and other parts of Southeast Asia. So it's a very fascinating topic of research, but unfortunately nobody is doing research, right? So it's something that should be looked at. It's a very fascinating topic that you have brought up and I think you are absolutely right. It is most likely the case that many more dance forms existed in northern India which may have been wiped out because of Turkic rule, the same way that all the ancient martial arts in northern India were wiped out during Turkic and uh, European rule. So, very interesting question. This is by Bhagavat. So, uh, yeah, how did the Padmanabha Swami temple in Kerala becomes so rich? And is it the world's richest temple or structure in gold and other gems? Well, from what we know thus far, the Padmanabha Swami temple in Kerala is the world's richest religious uh, monument or temple, right, or place of worship. It is estimated that it contains more than $1 trillion worth of gold and jewelry, right? And uh, there are a number of vaults in, vaults in this temple under, underground, which the Supreme Court or the Judiciary of India has forced the temple authorities to open. And uh, I think some court, I think the local Kerala High Court or something had ordered the state government to take possession of, of all this wealth. And I think the Supreme Court has, re- has reversed that de- the decision for now. So it is again back in the, uh, under the stewardship of the Travancore royal family. So it is an incredibly, uh, it's an incredibly rich place. Uh, the, the wealth that has been found there is, is mind boggling. It is estimated to be over $1 trillion or more in worth, in value. So there are gold coins from the Roman era, lakhs of gold coins from the Roman era, from, from Rome which have been found there. There have been coins found from, from Mesopotamia and, and Greece, gold coins and diamonds that are, like, that, that are the size of a, a grown, grown man's thumb and so much more. It's an incredible stash of ancient wealth. And it is clearly something that has been donated to the temple by devotees over thousands of years because this temple was mentioned in the Sangam literature for, from about 300 BCE. In Tamil Sangam literature, from, from around 300 BCE, at which place it was, at which time, it was said to be made out of solid gold. The walls and the roofs was made out of solid solid gold. That's how wealthy it was two and a half thousand years ago. So it seems that there have been donations coming into this temple for thousands of years. Even kings, possibly from Mesopotamia and even Greece, seem to have made substantial. Even from Rome, seem to have made substantial donations to this temple. So there is a very ancient story here. This temple seems to be many thousands of years old, right? And it is fabulously wealthy. The main problem is that this wealth should not be misappropriated by the state government or any government. It belongs to the temple and to the deity only, right? So it has to remain there. It cannot be misappropriated for whatever nefarious purposes they may have. This is the one problem in India that temples... The wealth of the temples is always stolen by the government. This is the way India is one of the most Hindu-phobic nations in the world because Hindus are discriminated against by law and by the constitution. So this is one example of that. So I hope that this wealth remains in the hands of the temple only because it is to the temple that it has been donated for thousands of years. So yes, it is the world's richest religious uh, place of worship by far by far. And maybe one of the oldest as well. So, interesting, very interesting question. Okay. uh, Right. Nepal's prime minister made a claim that yoga originated from Nepal and not India. Uh, Do we have any proofs from where did yoga originate? So the oldest evidence of yoga that we have anywhere in the world are little statuettes from the Saptasindhu region, the so-called Harappan or Indus Valley uh, Civilization era of India, the Saraswati Civilization. So you get these little statuettes there of of humanoid, of human beings, human figures engaged in various yoga poses. Let me see if I can pull it up on the internet. Uh, let me see, Harappan yoga. Very interesting. Let me try and show it to you. There are these statuettes that they have found, and uh, let me try and pull it up if it's possible. Little statues. Okay, let me share that one second. Let me share my screen. Okay, this is the screen. Uh, One second. Let me remove this. So, if you can see this little statuette here, it's a little figurine. If you see all these little statuettes, these are all. ancient 5,000 or more year old figurines from our ancient civilization of individuals, of people, men or women, can't tell, who are engaged in various yogic poses. As you can see, these are the yogic poses that we are still familiar with. Right? So this is from the sindhu region, from the Saraswati Valley, the Indus Valley, and the various other river valleys from the sindhu region. So this is the oldest known depiction of yoga anywhere in the known universe. So this claim by uh, Sri Oli <laughs> is, I'm, afraid, I'm sorry to say, it's laughable. He's just making a fool of himself, the Prime Minister of Nepal. And uh, it is just uh, a political tool to, to needle India because he is uh, basically a pawn in the hands of the Chinese, Mr. Oli. So yoga originates in the Saptasindhu region or maybe elsewhere also, but this is where we have found the oldest evidence. So based on the evidence, based on the data, we can say that the oldest known evidence is from the Saptasindhu region, from the the Saraswati Valley, Indus Valley region. So it is not from the region that we now call Nepal, which has always been part of India. It became a separate kingdom in the 18th century only, in the mid 18th century only. And it's only an accident of history that it's it's a separate country right now. It is very much part of India. The Nepalese people are our own people. And there is a reason why they have the right to come and live in India and work in India. They don't need visas. There are no controls. You can, they can come and live here. And so can Indians go and live in Nepal. There's a reason for it. Because we're the same people, the same culture, the same ethnicity, the same civilization for thousands of years. So this statement is just meant to needle India. It should basically, basically be laughed off. That's That's all it deserves. Okay, this is Shashwat Singh, who asks, why is it called Adam's Bridge? Why did they name it that? I assume you're referring to Rama Setu, which is now called Adam's Bridge, right? So let me share something interesting with you. They called the 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 most ancient uh, example of monumental architecture in the world. They have called it Adam's Bridge. Let me show you something else this is adams peak supposedly in sri lanka it is known in sinhalese as sri pada which means sacred footprint the hindus consider it to be the footprint of lord hanuman or lord shiva and the buddhists consider it to be the footprint of lord buddha so that local name in sinhalese and tamil and sanskrit is sri pada which means the sacred footprint but the English occupiers, the British occupiers have named it Adam-speak. And that's what Wikipedia refers it refers to it as. And similarly, every uh, atlas and every website online refers to the Ramasetu as Adam's bridge. So they need to put Adam everywhere for some reason. It's, it's, a, it's a form of cultural imposition it's a form of trying to establish cultural supremacy it's a try it's a form of it's it's a, it's a means of trying to denigrate indian culture which sri lanka sri lankan culture is also a essentially indian culture right so this is what they have been trying to do ever since they they occupied this this uh, civilization they have been trying to rename things and there are lots of other examples where they've tried to rename things right so the great sagar matha became mount everest sagarmatha or or chomolungma in in tibetan that became mount everest varodra became baroda jagannath became Jagarnaut. the ganga became ganges the sindhu became the indus and so on and so forth i there are I, i'm sure you know hundreds of such examples so they've been trying to rename everything and and unfortunately even after independence we have kept on using those strange foreign imposed names so that's why it's called Adams Bridge we don't need to call it Adams Bridge we should just call it Ram Setu which is the correct name that's all so Atul asks if Sanskrit is a, a unifying language for the whole subcontinent why does it have so many scripts Why we don't find so many scripts in any language found worldwide this is a brilliant observation sir There is no language in the world that has more than one script, more than a couple of scripts at most, right? For example, Latin has just one script, which is used for almost every Western European language. All the Slavic languages have the Cyrillic script. Arabic has its own script. Uh, The Chinese have their own script. The Japanese have their own script. And we Indians have a multitude of very closely related scripts, one for each language. And yet, Sanskrit has throughout history been written in a variety of scripts. In Kharoshti, in Brahmi, in the Sharda script, in Devanagari. And there are many other scripts that can carry this this language. So why is it so? Right? And the answer is very simple, my friends. It's because it has been around for so many years. It's been around for thousands of years. And that's why at different eras in history, it's been written in different scripts. So the Brahmi script was around for a thousand or so. I'm not sure exactly how long it was around. It was around for several centuries. It was prevalent for several centuries. So during that period, Sanskrit was written in the Brahmi script. Later on, other scripts scripts emerged. So Sanskrit was written in those other scripts. Sharda script is one of those. Today it is written in the Devanagari script. You can write Sanskrit in the Tibetan script as well. And you can write Sanskrit in the Mongolian Swayambhu script as well. So, Sanskrit is a language that has given birth to more than a thousand dialects and upper branch descendant languages. And it has influenced the culture of an entire continent, right? That is why, and, and it is the oldest language known to humankind. No Sumerian is not older than Sanskrit, no Mesopotamian lang- language is older than Sanskrit. Sanskrit is by far the oldest language known to humankind. And that is why, because it's been around for thousands of years, that's why it has been written in so many different lang- in, in so many different scripts. A script is merely a vehicle that is meant to carry a language. The vehicle can vary, can can change, as long as it is suitable for carrying the, the script. The vehicle is acceptable, right? So that's why Sanskrit has been written in so many different scripts. Very, very good question. Very good. Okay, I think I'm out of questions that I've selected. So let's take up a few, let's take up a lot of your uh, live questions. Let's take a look at what you're asking. All right. Tutankhamun is not Indian history, sir. Um huh. I am from Surat. We support Shivaji Maharaj. Yeah, good, good. I'm glad to know that. Uh, something else. Okay, I don't like to really discuss individuals. Audrey Trashke is not worth mentioning. She's a third-rate scholar. She's not even a scholar. So, you know what? Just ignore that, that, that individual, right? Just ignore her. She's no scholar. Uh, why is Ashoka overrated? I don't think he's overrated, but he is wrongly portrayed. He's portrayed as a saint when he was actually a tyrant. So it's something I've answered in, in one of my previous uh, episodes. But the, the fact is that he was a brutal tyrant, he was not some paragon of peace, he was not a pacifist. And he did not uh, convert to Buddhism after seeing the destruction he wrought on Kalinga in the Kalinga War. There is no conversion, first of all, to any Dharmic religion. You just start practicing the religion. Secondly, he started practicing the tenets of Buddhism before the Kalinga War took place. So he was already uh, a Buddhist, so to say, when he went to war with Kalinga and and, Kalinga. caused so much carnage there and then the fact is that he killed so many people because they had opposed him. Uh, He persecuted the Ajivika people, he persecuted uh, the Jainas also, he killed a great many members of his own family in order to secure his hold on the throne and so on and so forth. So he was a, a brutal tyrant and it is precisely such people that India's historians like to glorify, right? So Ashok was actually one of the worst kings India has ever seen, and I'll not be surprised if we find a palace from the ruins of his, of his uh, capital city, Patliputra, right? So, so that's about Ashok, sir. Uh, some more question. The North Sentinel Island in India, yeah, it's a small island, which is home to one of the last uncontacted, more or less uncontacted, ancient human populations on the world, on the earth. So it's basically a population that uh, migrated out of Africa some 30, 40,000 years ago, and they got stranded on this island and they've been living there ever since. They are still basically in the Stone Age. They may not be immune to many of the diseases that we are immune to. Right? So the government of India, thankfully, I'm glad, has decided to leave them alone. And the government has decided to prohibit any kind of contact with these people. So recently, some some American missionary went there to this island illegally with a Bible in his hand. And he was shot to death with arrows. I, I and the government of India did the right thing by not retrieving that guy's body and by not prosecuting these people for murdering this person, which was not murder. They did, they did. basically that island is under their jurisdiction and their rules apply there. So that is essentially what it is it is a de facto autonomous territory under India's protection. It's a protectorate. It's part of Indian territory, but we are treating it as a de facto autonomous territory, which will not be uh, interfered with. So I think it's a a good thing. Why has no one been able to climb to the top of Mount Kailash? Is it just terrain problem or is there more to the story? The mountain is sacred to three different cultural, religious practices. It is sacred in Hinduism, in Buddhism, in Jainism, and the fourth one is Bon, Tibetan-born religion. It is a sacred mountain. It is considered to be the center of the world. It is considered to be the abode of the great Lord Shiva. It is a sacrilege to even contemplate climbing the mountain. Even the Chinese have had the good sense, even though they currently occupy this territory, and even though they they don't give, give a dam about about any religion. Still, they have prohibited the climbing of this mountain. It is good. It is one good thing the Chinese have done. So it's not about the terrain. It's about the fact that this is a sacred mountain and it is a sacrilege to even think of climbing it. Tom Johnston. Why did Nepal not choose to become part of India, if India is so great? So, Tom, the Nepalese King, King Tribhuvan, requested India's Prime Minister, Sri Nehru, to allow Nepal to rejoin India in the 1950s. This is well documented. You can look it up online. So the the King of Nepal wanted Nepal to become a part of India again. He wanted Nepal to rejoin India. It is only because of the uh, decision of our Prime Minister, of India's Prime Minister, Sri, the great Sri uh, Jawaharlal Nehru, that Nepal was unable to reintegrate itself with India. Mr. Nehru refused this request. He said he did not want Nepal to be part of India. Why? So only he could tell. So yes, India is great and Nepal did want to rejoin India. It was the Indian Prime Minister who prevented them from joining India. Quite possible, yes. What else do we have? What else do we have? Some interesting questions. Let me find some. what about inequality in temple entry or what exactly um, do you mean by that i'm not sure a temple is a religious place I, I, I think they can set the rules as per as per their as per india's millennia old culture and religion i think that gets supremacy over any constitution that was uh, that was enacted 3 weeks ago or 40 50 70 years ago which is immaterial So, I don't see anything wrong with temples setting their own rules. Okay, some more questions, some more questions. Kailash again. Okay. Sri Lankan culture is different because it was a separate country from ancient times. There were no countries, sir, in the past. The nation state idea is a very recent idea. It dates back to the Treaty of Westphalia just two or three centuries ago. There were no nation states in the past. There were cultures, there were kingdoms, there were empires, there were civilizations. Sri Lanka is very much part of the Indian civilization. It's very much part of Indian culture. And if you look at Sri Lanka's foundational history, their founder, the great uh, Lord Kumar, the great Prince Kumar came from India and settled in Sri Lanka with his followers. And these are the ancestors of today's Sinhalese. And Sinhalese is very much a Prakrit-derived language. It is closest to, I think, Marathi in mainland India. So there is nothing separate about Sri Lanka. We do recognize the sovereignty and independence of Sri Lanka. We agree it's an independent country today. But it should have been part of India after independence what happened happened we don't have any designs territorial designs on sri lanka right we, we we i mean we wish the best to the people of sri lanka who are who are our own people the same as nepal so it was never a separate country or a separate culture or separate religion or separate anything it's the same ethnicity same culture and same civilization Was the Indus Valley civilization wiped out by nuclear civilization that happened during the Mahabharata era? Uh, One sentence answer no. Do not use Wikipedia for references, it has a very high leftist bias. Do not fund Wikipedia. I agree. Wikipedia is by no means a reliable source of information. It is highly biased, especially when it comes to India. So if I do show you Wikipedia from time to time, it's only for the sake of convenience. It is not because I endorse Wikipedia or believe in the accuracy. It is entirely, it is to a very great extent inaccurate. I have seen this on many occasions myself. So I agree with the statement. Yes. Can the government re- rewrite our history texts? I think we have elected the government to do what's best for the country, and can they do it? They have the power to do it. So my, the only question is why are they not changing a single word in our history textbooks? I remember the uh, right honourable uh, Mr. the right honourable minister, Mr. What's his name? Uh, Mr. Prakash Javadekar, who very proudly boasted that we have not changed a single word in our history textbooks. So Mr. The, the Honorable Minister was essentially saying that very proudly that we have done nothing. Right? So my question is, is that what we have elected uh, the great minister for? For doing nothing? So Mr. Javadekar, unfortunately, I regret to say was a failure as the minister in charge of this matter. And whoever is the current minister right now, again, has basically not done anything about this. So I must say that it is... Uh, very disappointing. Okay, what else do we have? Is Tamil the oldest or Sanskrit? See, by I think that it doesn't really matter which one is older. From the evidence that we have, we find that Sanskrit, the evidence of Sanskrit is older than the evidence for Tamil. The evidence for from Sanskrit for Sanskrit is from a region that was conquered and settled by ancient Indians about three and a half or four thousand years ago. It is in present-day Syria and Anatolia. It is the Mitanni kingdom, which is why where we find the oldest evidence of written Sanskrit. So this was an out of India migration. Okay, so that's about three and a half or four thousand years old. The Mitanni and the Hittites. So that's where you find it. The oldest evidence for Tamil is from Sangam literature, which goes back to around 400 or 500 BCE at the oldest. Okay. So from this evidence, from the hard evidence that we have, one has to say that Sanskrit is the oldest, but this does not mean at all that Tamil may not also be as old as that. It may also mean, it may also be possible that both languages predate this evidence by many centuries or many millennia. It's very much possible. Because in the Rig Veda, we have uh, uh, the Rishi Agastya, who is one of the authors of some of the uh, verses in the Vedas, right? And he is considered to be the father of the Tamil language. He is considered to be the person who wrote the first grammar of the Tamil language. So, according, considering this fact, this evidence, it would most likely be Uh, factually correct, that Tamil and Sanskrit are equally old. But the evidence that we have as of today, if we go only by the evidence, it looks that Sanskrit is older. So it is a matter that is going to, we need more data about this. So the uh, evidence is going to change. And our understanding of this matter will also change. But please understand, my friends, this is not a competition. These are both two of our greatest languages and we must honor them equally so that's the that's the thing i have to say about this okay what else do we have my views about the Oham community of assam and why they're not recognized in our history there are so many such dynasties and and such communities they are completely whitewashed out of our history textbooks. And it's because they were they were brave and they fought for the country. The Ahoms basically repelled invasion after invasion from the Turks and they prevented the Turks from occupying the entirety of northeast India. So that's their immense contribution to safeguarding a certain part of our country, a very significant part of our country. And our Nehruvian era historians despise anybody who has contributed to the country in any way, especially with the use of armed force. Right? And that's why such people are wiped out. Many other people have asked me, I have not taken those questions today, but many people have asked me, why are the Rajputs are uh, not uh, uh, spoken about in the history textbooks. Why are the contributions of the Jats not mentioned in history textbooks In various other dynasties? There are so many dynasties that have been completely blacked out of history and the Ahoms are one of these. I think they are they were one of the very significant dynasties in India. They have contributed a great deal to this country in the form of defense and in the form of culture as well. So I would like to see a day when all of these dynasties that make and all of these communities that make India such a vibrant, plural, and beautiful place, I want to see a day when these are all recognized in India's history textbooks. Russian is also like Sanskrit because it also came from Sanskrit too. There are many words in Russian that are exactly the same as Sanskrit words. And there are words in Lithuanian as also that are almost the same as words in Sanskrit. So yeah, linguistics is a very interesting field. If you go deep into this, you will find lots and lots of linkages which will astound you. So yes, Russian is definitely similar to Sanskrit. the, The Slavic languages are closer to Sanskrit than the Western European languages. I am... It's possible that the Slavic languages may be Satam languages instead of Centum languages. There is this uh, dichotomy among the Indo-European language family, the Shatam languages and the Centum languages. So I, if I am not mistaken, the Slavic languages may possibly be part of the Shatam languages, which Sanskrit is part of. Okay, what else? okay let me take this question uh, why do modern day historians consider king vikramaditya and vikram samvat as fake which is around 10 ad or thereabouts it's because modern day historians themselves are fake okay uh, they they claim that this uh, that maharaja vikramaditya was a legendary or mythical king he did not really exist which is absolute nonsense considering that an entire era of indian history is named after this king after this emperor. So they are trying to whitewash the great historical figures out of Indian history. That's all it is. So I am, I completely uh, disagree with this contention that uh, the emperor Vikramaditya was a mythical emperor. He was a real emperor. And once we start investigating, uh, evidence will come. Evidence will emerge of his existence. All right. What else do we have? What else do we have? Any other good questions? Okay. Please answer. Uh, I had so many carvings of prehistoric animals, etc. in ancient Hindu temples. Well, I have never seen any evidence of carvings or sculptures of dinosaurs in ancient Hindu temples. So as far as my limited knowledge goes, I have not seen any evidence of this. If you do have evidence of this, you can show it next time or I'll try and look it up. From my knowledge, whatever limitations it has, I have never seen any evidence of that. If there is any such thing, it means that they may have found some bones of dinosaurs and tried to reconstruct what the animal may have looked, looked like. It is well known that India is one of the repositories of of a great deal of dinosaur remains. Uh, We have never tried to excavate those or showcase those, but they do exist in India. So if such carvings do exist, it may indicate that our ancestors may have found those dinosaur bones and tried to recreate a likeness of the dinosaurs. All right, let me take one more question and I think we'll be done after that. Praveen Mohan's video about evidence of carvings of dinosaurs and machines. Okay, thank you for the reference. I will will try and take a look at that. Sure, thank you. Okay, what else do we have? Do we have any other interesting questions, Sanoli, I've answered about Sanoli. Okay, I think we are almost done here. Okay, this is the final question for today, my friends. Uh, in one of the articles from Scroll, it was mentioned that Hindu kings also raided temples and abducted idols Examples of Pallava Kings was mentioned. Look, the scroll is not a website that you can really uh, take very seriously when it comes to Indian history, especially in their treatment of the topic of Hinduism. First of all, let me say that, okay? So anything they write about Hinduism or Indian history, you have to take it with a tablespoon of salt. Secondly, it is true To some extent, certain Hindu kings, certain Indian kings would raid other kingdoms and when they would capture or conquer a kingdom, they would go to the greatest temple and take the idol from there with great respect and reverence and bring it back to their capital and install it in their temple. So they would never loot a temple or desecrate a temple or, or commit any sort of sacrilege there or kill the priests or anything. They revered these temples and their, their, their idols so much that they would sometimes even conquer a kingdom just to bring back that great idol with its great power back to their kingdom. So that is the most that they would do. It is not in any way adharmic. Okay, Adharmic would be to do some sort of uh, sacrilege in a temple, like the Turks did on a routine basis. No Hindu king has ever done that. No Hindu king has ever destroyed a temple or or desecrated a temple. This is what they would do, at most. And they would never steal the or plunder the wealth of a temple. So, so this is basically what, what you are referring to is a nice and subtle distortion of history with one foot on the on, in, in the realm of facts, but a great deal of, of distortion also, which is being put across by this scroll or whatever it is. So yeah, so that's what it is about. Okay, do we have anything else? Philadelphia experiment is not part of Indian history. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, what else? No, I am not aware of any curse of the on the door of the Padmanabhaswamy Temple. I am not aware of any such thing. Sorry. Uh, the Varna system is a very complex topic, so we will discuss that in a future episode. It's, it's something you can't discuss in, in five minutes. or I cannot give a five-minute off-the-cuff answer. I have to basically give a detailed exposition of this thing. You know, it's a very complex topic. So I will do it. I will do it definitely, but in the future. Okay. I think we're done for today. So guys, thank you so much. Thank you for all your questions. Thank you for your viewership. I'm very grateful. Like I said, next week onwards, we'll have three live sessions per week. I will continue releasing the short clip videos. So you'll have plenty of content on this channel on an ongoing basis. And I'm going to start making again, long form documentary style videos very soon. So that's what you can look forward to from next week onwards. So tomorrow I will publish the schedule of next week. And I will see you very soon. I'll see you next week, very soon. So thank you and have a good day. Have a good night. I will see you. Bye-bye.